0: It is orthodox Christian doctrine accepted and expounded by Aquinas in various places that God is the creator of all things other than God and that God created human beings in his own image. As Aquinas sees it, that image is imprinted in human nature which includes a potentiality characteristic of the human species. To the extent to which that potentiality is realized, The image of God in human beings is intensified or made more perfect. It has its ultimate perfection in heaven in the contemplation of God, which is the beatitude for human beings. You should all have a handout. I won't cue you to the handout, but it will help as we go along. Something along these lines is a common scholarly interpretation of Aquinas' account. So, for example, Etienne Gilson says Beatitude must consist in an operation of the speculative intellect. For the most perfect power of the intellect is that of which the object is the most perfect, namely, the essence of God. The act constituting beatitude must therefore be of a speculative nature. And this amounts to saying that this act must consist in contemplation. And Gilson goes on to say, the essential and true beatitude can only be found in the full view of the essence of God. This interpretation of Aquinas' account of human nature and the image of God in it is well supported by various texts in his works. In this lecture, I will first sketch briefly the evidence in Aquinas' text for this interpretation, and then I will show that if this is indeed Aquinas's account, it leads to conclusions that are manifestly unacceptable. Next, I will show that there is ample support in Aquinas' text for a different interpretation of Aquinas' account of human nature and the image of God in it. And I will argue that this other interpretation of his account is not only acceptable, but in fact fruitful in its philosophical implications. Finally, I will ask why it is, why it is that in Aquinas' work, warrant can be found for two highly disparate interpretations of his view. I will argue that the two interpretations are in fact two sides of what is the one true Thomistic account of human nature and the image of God created in it. And I will show that the apparent problems for the Thomistic account emerge only when one of these interpretations is taken in isolation from the other. Taken together, these two interpretations yield one theologically powerful account of God and of the image of God in human nature. So Aquinas on human nature and the image of God in it, the first interpretation. Aquinas maintains that it is the rational nature of human beings that makes them in the image of God. The perfection of the image of God in human beings is also the perfection of human beings. And so the perfection of human beings consists in the full actualization of the capacity for reason. This full actualization of the capacity for reason, Aquinas thinks, can be found only in the contemplation of the truth, which is also the contemplation of God. And beatitude consists in this contemplation in heaven. In heaven, Aquinas thinks, the human intellect will see God as God is and be completely happy in that intellectual vision. So to take just one example, Aquinas says, final and perfect happiness can consist in nothing else than the vision of the divine essence. To make this clear, two points must be noticed. First, a human being is not perfectly happy so long as something remains for him to desire and seek Second, the perfection of any power is determined by the nature of its object. Now the object of the intellect is the essence of a thing. Consequently, the intellect attains perfection to the extent that it knows the essence of a thing. But for perfect happiness, the intellect needs to reach the very essence of the first cause. So given that text and many others like it, this seems to be Aquinas' account. Human beings are created by God with a nature which is an image of God and that nature is picked out as distinct from other created things by its capacity for reason. To the extent to which this capacity is actualized, the image of God is perfected. And the perfection of the image of God, the perfect actualization of the specifying potentiality for reason in the nature of human beings, that is the complete happiness for human beings. And it will be fully realized only in heaven through the intellectual vision of the essence of God. Aquinas emphasizes this way of understanding human nature and its fulfillment by highlighting the things that are not essential to human happiness. What is not needed for happiness is wealth, honors, fame, power, bodily goods, or pleasure. Even things identifiable as goods of the soul other than the vision of God are not necessary. Now so far, for those familiar with the Christian tradition, this is a fairly predictable list of what's not necessary for happiness. But that list continues in ways that are going to be more surprising to some of us. So for example, Aquinas says, if we're talking about the small happiness of the present life, well then a happy human being needs friends. Not of course to make use of them, since a happy human being is sufficient to himself. And not to delight in friends, since a happy human being has perfect delight in himself, in the operation of his virtue. Rather, a happy human being needs friends for the sake of good, namely that he might do good to his friends, he needs somebody to be benevolent to, and that he might take delight in seeing his friends do good and even that he might be helped by his friends in doing good to others. That's this life. But if we are talking about perfect happiness which will be in the heavenly fatherland, then the company of friends is not necessary to happiness. That is because a human being has the complete fullness of his perfection in God. After explaining that on Aquinas' account the things human beings desire in this life are really good only in so far as they lead to the contemplation of God, Gilson summarizes what he takes to be Aquinas' view about friends in this way. Gilson says, as a matter of happiness in this present life, a happy man has need of friends, not to make use of them, the wise man suffices unto himself, not to derive pleasure from them, the wise man finds his perfect pleasure in his exercise of virtue but rather in order to have the material for the exercise of virtue. His friends serve him as the recipients of his benevolence and for the expansion of the perfection of his goodness. But in the afterlife, he has no need of friends other than God who comforts him out of his eternity, truth, and love. So on this first interpretation of Aquinas' account of human nature and the image of God in it, the beatitude of heaven is just the perfect culmination of the theological knowledge of truth achieved by human cognitive activity in this life. And it is a striking feature of this interpretation of Aquinas' account that beatitude, which is the perfection of the image of God in human beings is found in heaven as something that can be had by a self-sufficient human individual operating in isolation from all others and devoted only to a solitary intellectual view of the deity. So that's the first interpretation of Aquinas' account and there's plenty of textual evidence for it. But here's the thing, if this interpretation of the Thomistic account of human nature is correct, if it's a correct interpretation, there are multiple problems with it as an explanation of human nature and the fulfillment of the image of God in it. Here, in this very brief lecture, I'm going to focus on just two of these problems. First, Although on this interpretation, the Thomistic account is attempting to explain human nature, it seems a particularly inhumane view. Consider, for example, the story of Job in the biblical book that bears his name. That story reports two separate episodes of affliction for Job. In the interest of brevity, I'll mention only the afflictions in the first episode. In that first episode of suffering, Job loses in one day all his animals and servants by a combination of natural disasters and human depredations. And all his children are killed by a freak accident in a sudden storm. Because of the nature of wealth in his society, the loss of the animals and servants swiftly reduces Job from great wealth to poverty, with all the wretchedness that such a precipitous change produces. The death of all his children at once plunges him into heart-cracking grief. In these disasters, in their combination and their suddenness, there are two different kinds of suffering for Job. There is the suffering of the sudden reversal of fortune with all the troubles that accompany such reversals and then there is the anguish stemming from the death of his children. Both kinds of suffering come to Job in the most intense way not only because the disasters of the first episode affect all his substance and every one of his children, but also because both kinds of losses happen at once. But the first interpretation of the Thomistic account discounts all this suffering. That's because on that interpretation, remember, happiness doesn't consist in riches, honor, or pleasures. Since these things are not ingredient in happiness, then it appears to follow that without these things, Job can still be happy. And even the children is compatible with happiness, since friends, and so presumably also family members, are not necessary for perfect happiness either. So on this interpretation of the Thomistic account, then contrary to what virtually everybody who knows the story strongly believes, it seems that Job can be happy, or actually should be happy, even in the face of the death of his children and the other things that happened to him in that first episode of his suffering. Even if it is not so counterintuitive as to be really just obviously false, still this view will strike most people as inhuman in the severity of its unwillingness to make any concession to what virtually everyone takes to be human nature. And in fact, in other texts, Aquinas himself assumes the same common humane attitude. Commenting on the line in the Gospel of John, in which Christ says to his apostles, if you love me, you would be glad because I go to the Father. Aquinas says, he says, it's usual among friends to feel less for the loss of a friend, when the friend departs to go to his exaltation. And so our Lord mentions this reason for his departure for the sake of the of his apostles. In this line, Aquinas is assuming not only the fact, but also the acceptability of human sorrow over the loss of a friend. There is no suggestion here of a severe asceticism that makes friends unnecessary to a solitary happiness. And the solitary character of the perfection of human nature in happiness is itself the second main problem with this interpretation. And here I need to give just a little bit of background. Philosophy in recent decades has tended to distinguish between first-person and third-person experiences. You can think about the distinction this way. In a first-person experience, I am directly and immediately aware of a person as a person, but that person is just me. When I'm aware of being in pain, I'm having a first-person experience of myself as a person. By contrast, in a third-person experience, I have knowledge of the states of another person, but from the outside, as it were, and not in virtue of being consciously connected to that other as a person. If I see somebody across the street doubled up and think that person is in pain, then I'm having a third-person experience of that other. On this first interpretation of the Thomistic account, the heart of a human person's happiness and the ultimate fulfillment of the image of God in human nature is the vision of God that a perfected human person has in the afterlife. Depending on how it's considered, on this interpretation, the Thomistic account is centered on either a first person or a third person human experience. If the account is understood as focused on a human person's contemplation of the essence of God, then the account is highlighting a third person experience of the deity. If it's understood as focused on a human person's awareness of his own contemplation of God, then the account is highlighting a first person experience. So depending on how we exactly understand Aquinas on this first interpretation, he's giving us beatitude as either a first or a third person experience, as the perfection of the image of God in human nature. But contemporary neuroscience has made clear that human beings have specialized cognitive capacities for a distinctive kind of cognition, a non-propositional kind of cognition, a second personal knowledge of other persons, not first personal, not third personal, but a second personal knowledge of other persons that enables human beings to be connected together with one another in specialized social networks of a kind and intensity not found among other animals. The cognitive capacities enabling this distinctive kind of cognition and the social interconnectedness it enables are also characteristic of human beings and also central to human nature. There is by now a mountain of literature on these cognitive capacities and the cognition they enable. I'm gonna give you just a a teaspoonful of this uh, research here. Research on some of the deficits of autism has helped to clarify the character of this distinctive kind of cognition and the social connection it enables because because autism in all its degrees is marked by an impairment in such cognition. As a result of the epidemic of autism and the the endless research on it, we are beginning to understand not only something about the nature of the impaired cognitive capacities in people with autism spectrum disorder, but also the great importance of these specialized cognitive capacities for human development and human functioning. It turns out that for an infant to develop the cognitive capacities needed for typical human functioning, including even language use, the infant has to be part of a larger system composed of at least two persons, the infant and her primary caregiver. The social connection between a typically developing infant and her caregiver consists first in shared or joint attention. And the absence of such attention is an early hallmark of autism in a very young child. This notion of shared or joint attention is a technical notion, and it is not easy to give an analysis of it. One developmental psychologist who was instrumental in first helping us to understand these things about autism, Peter Hobson, he says this. He says, for an instance of infant social engagement to count as joint attention, it is not enough that the infant attends to some object or event that just happens to be at the focus of someone else's attention, critically, the infant needs to be aware of the object or event as the focus of the other person's attention, and in addition, for full jointness, the infant should share awareness of the sharing of the focus, something that often entails sharing an attitude toward the thing or event in question. Trying to summarize his own understanding of the role that the lack of such shared attention plays in the development of autism, Hobson says that autism arises because of what he calls a disruption in the system of child in relation to others. By way of explanation of this ugly technical phrase, Hobson says, My experience as a researcher of autism has convinced me that such a system of child in relation to others not only exists, but takes charge of the intellectual growth of the infant. Central to mental development is a psychological system that is greater and more powerful than the sum of its parts. The parts are the caregiver and her infant. The system is what happens when they act and feel together in concert. The combined operation of infant in relation to caregiver is a motive force in human development and it achieves wonderful things. When it does not exist and the motive force is lacking, the whole of mental development is terribly compromised at the extreme autism results. On Hobson's views then, and he was a pioneer in this research, on Hobson's views, autism cannot be explained apart from a complex system involving two human beings, an infant and her primary caregiver. As the phrase indicates, joint or shared attention has to be understood in terms of a system comprising two human beings acting in concert, that is, acting in mutual second personal experience. The cognitive capacities at work in such a system are not only an essential part of human nature, but they are in fact foundational to any kind of knowledge that requires language. But these special cognitive capacities are unable to be developed or employed in isolation. They require at least the kind of second personal connection with another person that is found in shared attention. Insofar as on the first interpretation, the Thomistic account of human nature and the fulfillment of the image of God in it is a function just of experience and cognition that can be had by one human being in isolation. The account is missing the second personal character distinctive of human nature that this new scientific research on human cognitive capacities has illuminated. The full realization of the distinctive capacities of human beings are not exhausted by the adept and appropriate pattern processing of linguistically framed propositions in contemplation of theological truth, which is what we generally mean by the actualization of the capacity for reason. High functioning persons with autism spectrum disorder are capable of processing too, And yet, in virtue of their autism spectrum disorder, they are impaired to one degree or another with respect to those cognitive capacities that enable the social cognition which is also distinctive of human beings and so also essential to human nature. For more than one reason then, On this first interpretation of the Thomistic account of human nature and the fulfillment of the image of God in it, the account appears to be at best incomplete and at worst, totally wrongheaded. If the first interpretation of the Thomistic account of human nature seems to focus on human beings taken individually and in isolation, if it seems to highlight the impersonal character in both the image of God and human nature and its fulfillment, there is nonetheless another interpretation of the Thomistic account that can also be found in Aquinas' text. When he's describing ultimate human happiness in, that, in the texts that are warrant for the first interpretation, Aquinas says things like this, the ultimate happiness of a human being consists in the contemplation of truth. And he goes on to take advantage of this view of human happiness that for this work, a human being is more self-sufficient. He has little anything outside himself. Or to take another example of what supports that first interpretation, when Aquinas is giving a philosophical explanation of the doctrine that in heaven, human beings are united to God, he says this. If we suppose that some created intellect begins to see the divine essence, it it follows that the divine essence is united to that intellect as an intelligible species But it's impossible that the divine essence be changed and so this union must begin through a change in the created intellect. And this change can only consist in the created intellect acquiring some new disposition. Accordingly, the disposition whereby the created intellect is raised to the intellectual vision of the divine substance, that's rightly called the light of glory. Not that it makes the object actually intelligible, but because it makes the intellect able actually to understand. That is, that is a description of union with the deity in heaven. Just calling that to your attention. On this way of thinking about the matter, a human being is united to God when the divine essence is united as an intelligible species to a human intellect which thereby gains a new disposition, enabling it to understand more than it did before. Now an intelligible species is an impersonal thing, and the addition of an intelligible species to an intellect is also an impersonal process. The result of that process is a new understanding on the part of a human intellect. But that process is an act of the intellect which an individual human being can engage in by himself, in self-sufficiency, as Aquinas puts it. Since what is being described in these lines is beatitude, it's clear that the solitary character of human happiness and the impersonal character of the fulfillment of human nature are being highlighted. So that's the kind of thing we get out of that first interpretation. But in his commentary on the Gospel of John, when he's describing the perfection of human nature in its connection to truth, Aquinas' emphasis is decidedly on the personal and in fact on second personal interaction among persons. Aquinas says, talking to his reader, if you ask where to go, cling to Christ, for he is the truth which we desire to reach. In this commentary on this biblical line, Aquinas is identifying the ultimate perfection of human beings in the contemplation of truth as a connection with Christ. But Christ has not just the mind of God, he also has a human mind and a human will. There's nothing impersonal about Christ. On this way of thinking about the fulfillment of human nature, human perfection cannot be had in isolation, on the contrary, The object of human fulfillment, which is the truth, is identified as the person of Christ, not as the propositional truths of theology or the impersonal essence of God. And the connection to truth is described in maximally personal ways too. In fact, Aquinas describes the connection to truth as a matter of clinging to a person. Furthermore, the notion of clinging carries with it not only the implication of personal relationship, but even the suggestion of need. We cling to what we must have in order not to lose what we care about. Where clinging to a person is concerned, there is no question at all of isolated individual self-sufficiency. In Philippians, the apostle Paul says, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Commenting on this line, Aquinas says, the apostle is speaking precisely. For a person regards it as gain when he can improve the imperfect life he has. Thus a sick person regards a healthy life as gain. Our life is Christ, but here it is imperfect. Therefore, when we die in the body, our life, namely Christ, with whom we are then present, our life, who is Christ, is perfected in us. Here, Aquinas is understanding union between God and a human person in heaven as a matter of a personal relationship with Christ. In fact, in the perfected human condition in heaven, not only is the human person with Christ, but Christ is actually in the redeemed human person in a perfected way. Elsewhere in this same commentary, where Aquinas is concerned to draw the conclusion that the reward of the redeemed comes immediately on death, Aquinas says, this shows the error in the opinion of those Greeks who think that the souls of the saints are not with Christ immediately after death. Here what he's highlighting as the condition of a perfected human person in heaven is plainly a personal relationship with Christ. In addition, when Aquinas describes the Christian life, loving personal relations are manifestly central. So, for example, he says, since the love by which we love God is in us by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself must also be in us, therefore, since we are made lovers of God by the Holy Spirit, and every beloved is in the love by the Holy Spirit, necessarily the Father and the Son dwell in us also. On Aquinas' view, when the Holy Spirit indwells in a person in grace, the Holy Spirit unites that person with God in a relationship personal enough to count as friendship with God. Aquinas says, Since by the Holy Spirit we are established as friends of God, fittingly enough, it is by the Holy Spirit that human beings are said to receive the revelation of the divine mysteries. And a bit later, expanding on the idea that a person of faith is friends with God, Aquinas says, in the first place, it is proper to friendship to converse with one's friend, It is also a property of friendship that one take delight in a friend's presence, that one rejoice in his words and deeds, and it is especially in our sorrows that we hasten to our friends for consolation. Since then, the Holy Spirit constitutes us God's friends and makes God dwell in us and us in God. It follows that through the Holy Spirit, we have joy in God. In his commentary on Galatians in the context of a discussion of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, Aquinas describes the perfection of a human being not as a matter of a first personal or third personal experience of a vision of God's essence. Rather, he describes the perfection of a human being as a decidedly second personal relationship with God. Aquinas says, the ultimate perfection by which a person is made perfect inwardly is joy, which stems from the presence of what is loved. Whoever has the love of God, however, already has what he loves. As is said in 1 John 4, 16, whoever abides in the love of God abides in God, and God abides in him, and joy wells up from this. And when in connection with the fruits of the Holy Spirit Aquinas describes the fulfillment of the desires of human nature, he also emphasizes the second personal character of both those desires and their fulfillment. He says, God himself is love. Hence it is written in Romans 5, the love of God is poured forth in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The necessary result of this love is joy because every lover rejoices at being united to the beloved. Now love has always the actual presence of God whom it loves. So the consequence of this love is joy and the perfection of joy is peace because our desires rest altogether in God. So these texts support a different, a second interpretation of the Thomistic account of human nature and the image of God in it. This alternative Thomistic account, this alternative interpretation of the Thomistic account, in effect fleshes out Augustine's famous line, which is also about human nature and the fulfillment of the image of God in it. Augustine says to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. On this conception of human nature, the capacity for second personal connection is central to human nature, and the perfection of that capacity requires second personal union in love with God. This way of looking at human nature is far more in accord with the recent scientific work on human cognitive capacities typical of human nature. And the commonly accepted understanding of the sufferings of Job are also validated by this account. Think of it this way. If human beings are made for second personal connection with others, then the loss of children will be devastating to human beings. And maybe by extension, even the loss of property will be so also insofar as human beings are capable of this kind of intimacy or love, even for things other than human beings. Or think about it this way, if the fulfillment of love is what is central to heaven, then the loss of what a person loves has something of hell about it. And so Job's heartbroken suffering is both natural on this understanding of human nature and also appropriate on this interpretation of the Thomistic account of human nature and the image of God in it. It is also worth pointing out at least briefly that this capacity for second personal cognition and its fulfillment in union of love That mirrors more nearly the relations among the persons of the Trinity than does an isolated contemplation of an impersonal divine essence. Finally, I wanna say here, just in case you might be thinking I don't know it, I wanna say here that this interpretation of the Thomistic account also has scholarly support. So here, for example, is what Gilles Emery says. He says, as regards the image of God in human beings, the resemblance to God is a matter of knowing God and loving God. It is by knowing God and loving him that one resembles or is assimilated to him. Whether this falls under the heading of a natural aptitude or under that of an activity acquired in grace, When he scrutinizes these two constitutive features of the image of God in human beings, that is, knowing and loving God, Thomas shows that the issue is entirely one of the image of the Trinity. Human beings are not only cut to the image of the divine nature, but also to the image of the three divine persons. Under the new guise of the representation or expression of the Trinity, This takes us back to one of the central features of the doctrine of indwelling. The divine persons inhabit the soul of the saints when they are known and loved, present as the known is in the knower and the beloved in the lover. Or to take one more example, since he's here at this conference and maybe somewhere even in this aula, Dominic Legg says, the Holy Spirit does not merely give us facts about Christ, As love in person, the Holy Spirit infuses into us a love of Christ. Truly to know Jesus is to be made his friend, to be drawn into the closest intimacy with him, to be caught up in love. All this is indispensable if one is really to know him as he is. This knowledge and love of Christ that the Spirit gives is equally a knowledge and love of each of the divine persons, granting us a participation in the very inner life of the Trinity. This is the import of Christ's prayer to the Father on the eve of his Passion. When Christ prays for his apostles to the Father, that the love by which you, the Father, have loved me would be in them and I in them. Aquinas thus links the work of the Son and the Spirit in giving knowledge and then expands on their intertwined roles in accomplishing our Trinity-shaped salvation through it. The fruit of this knowledge is, in the words of the prayer of Jesus, that the love by which you the Father have loved me would be in them and I in them. And like concludes by saying, Aquinas places the personal indwelling of the Son as word at center stage. The Father loves the Son and consequently the Father loves all those in whom the Son indwells. Two aspects are closely interconnected in this doctrinal exegesis. The Father loves the disciples insofar as the Son is present in them and the Son is present in them insofar as they know the truth because the Son is the word and the truth. So that's the second interpretation of Aquinas' account of human nature and the image of God in it. And so there is a puzzle, or at least a pressing question. What's the connection between these two apparently very different accounts of human nature, the image of God in human nature, and the fulfillment of that nature in heaven? What's the connection? How could the experience of heaven consist both in solitary and self-sufficient contemplation of the impersonal divine essence and consist also in the mutual indwelling of God and human persons in a union of love that most resembles human friendship. I think that the hinted at in that last line of Legg's text, which I just read, the Son is the word and truth. Here we have an identification of a person of the Trinity. Who is characterized by a mind and a will? We have the identification of that person with truth, which is something abstract and impersonal. And this identification is to be expected on the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. On that doctrine, there is only one God, and that God is pure Essa, as Tobin's like to say. But it is also three divine persons. And though the mind and will in each divine person is one and the same, we have no social Trinitarianism here, nonetheless, each of the divine persons is correctly characterized as loving each of the others. Finally, it is a hallmark of the doctrine of the Trinity that the divine persons are not reducible to the one deity as if the one divine essence were more foundational than the three persons, and similarly, the divine essence is not reducible to the persons, as if they were more fundamental than the one divine essence is. For this reason, on the doctrine of the Trinity, it is true to say that God is pure essence, and also true to say that the three persons of the Trinity are united in a personal union of love. In my view, Aquinas helps us understand these things in this way. He puts what I take to be the crucial point this way. He says, with regard to what God himself is, God himself is neither universal nor particular. This is a hard one, the only alternatives, but that is what he says. God himself is neither universal nor particular. And you can think about the point this way. If it were true without remainder that God is pure Essa then God could not be characterized by a mind and a will, since mind and will are particulars, not universals, as Aquinas is at great pains to say in his commentary on Boethius' De Hebdomadibus. On the other hand, if it were true that God is a particular, then it is hard to see how it could be true that God is pure essa. And so Aquinas says we have to maintain both these apparently contradictory things about God, he says. All the names imposed by us to signify some complete subsisting thing, signify in the concrete and particular, as is appropriate for composite things. But those names that are imposed to signify simple forms signify something not as subsisting, but rather as that by means of which something is. As for example, whiteness signifies that which something is white. So because God is both simple and subsistent, we attribute to God both abstract names and concrete names to signify God's concreteness. Nonetheless, each kind of name falls short of God's mode of being, just as our intellect does not know God as he is in this life. And so the doctrine of the Trinity allows both interpretations of the Thomistic account of human nature and the image of God in it to be melded into one account. And both the account of eternal life in heaven as consisting of the contemplation of truth and the account of life in heaven as consisting in a joyful and shared union of love with God are compatible, these are compatible views. Aquinas' own formulation of this melded account can be found in one passage after another of his commentary on the discourses of Christ in the Gospel of John. Here is one particularly representative example. Commenting on Christ saying to the Father, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. Commenting on this saying, Aquinas says, our Lord says, that eternal life lies in vision, in seeing. But it is love which moves one to this vision and is in a certain way its fulfillment. For the completion and crown of beatitude is the delight experienced in the enjoyment of God and this is caused by charity. Still, the substance of beatitude consists in vision, in seeing, as it is written, we will see him as he is. Here, beatitude, which is the fulfillment and the perfection of the image of God in human nature, here, beatitude consists in seeing God as God is. But the God who is seen is properly referred to by a personal pronoun. We will see him as he is and the vision will unite a human person in love with joy to the triune God whose mutual and interwoven love that human person then shares. And in that shared love, each of the human persons in heaven will also be united with each of the other human persons in heaven, not because a perfected human being has a need of those other human beings, but because there's more joy in shared union. And this shared love and joy is itself the fulfillment of in human beings. A little later in that same commentary, Aquinas says, the perfection of each thing is nothing but sharing a likeness to God. For we are good to the extent that we resemble God. Accordingly, our unity contributes to our perfection to the extent that it shares in the unity of God. <coughs> now, there is a twofold unity in God there is a unity of nature, I and the Father are one, and there is a unity of love in the Father and Son, which is a unity of spirit. Both of these unities are found in us, not in an equal way but with a certain likeness. The Father and the Son have the same individual nature while we have the same specific nature. Again, they are one by a love which is not a participated love and a gift from another. Rather, this love proceeds from them. We are one by participating in their higher love. (coughs) And commenting on Christ's prayer that his apostles might be one as he and the Father are one. Aquinas also says, he says, we read God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. God loves absolutely those to whom he wills all good. That is, they have God himself. And to have God is to have truth, for God is truth. The truth is had or possessed when it is known. And so God who is truth, truly and absolutely loves those to whom he manifests himself. And so the puzzle and the question regarding the two apparently disparate and divergent interpretations of the Thomistic account of human nature and the image of God created in human nature, this puzzle, this pressing question, they have a resolution and an answer in the doctrine of the Trinity, which allows both interpretations to be melded compatibly. In fact, only when these interpretations are melded do they give a correct account of human nature as created in the image of God. On the resulting Thomistic account, the apparently infelicitous consequences attendant on the first interpretation of Aquinas' account, they no longer follow. Melded together, the two interpretations align the ordinary human interpretation of Job. And they also make clear that the cognitive capacities facilitating second personal experience are constitutive of human nature and the image of God in it the pure Essa, which is the deity, and the three divine persons who are united in mutual love in the deity are mirrored in the fulfillment of human nature in beatitude, when each human person will see the one divine essence as it is, and will also be united with the divine persons in the love they share with each other, and with all human persons united together in love and joy in heaven. And with that, I'm done.
1: Um, I'm going to take the privilege of asking the first question or making the first comment. Well, I have two comments. And these are meant to be ironic, but I have so he says. I suspect you're going to find a way to disagree with them. So um, I appreciate that and agree with it as far as I can tell. My uh, first comment is: I think you could even strengthen, not to say there's as a defect in the argument, but I think could the argument. Because in his Christology, Aquinas enunciates a principle he takes from John Damascene, remotely, it comes from the notions. All acts of persons are acts conducted through the medium of natures. All acts of natures are natural, personal acts of natures and actions of persons. So I take it that, and he applies this to human persons, not just to Christ. So I take it when. He describes things like the intellect being united into the divine essence. He takes this as an abstract statement about an aspect of a person. If you run this like line of thinking through consistently, in which case, what you're saying the Trinity would have to go all the way down into the statements about human natural actions, the actions of persons, and it's only because he's abstracting to the aspect of the nature that he could be mistaken for saying something that is seemingly impersonal,
0: Yeah, I I want to take your comments one at a time. So you should know that I hardly ever disagree with Thomas Joseph. I mean, why would I? He is so generally right, just right on the money. And he has also given the very best explanation I know of the connection between divine simplicity and the Trinity. What a lovely paper. So uh, I agree with him completely on this point too and I think it simply strengthens the case. It strengthens the case I'm trying to make. When you first look at that first interpretation of Aquinas' account, which is given as the sole interpretation of his account by uh, by various scholars or is so understood anyway by various people studying his text, it certainly looks impersonal. But uh, Father Thomas Joseph is completely right. I mean, Aquinas says, you can say that the eye sees, but it would be much better to say that a person sees by means of the eye. So when you see his full account altogether, the two accounts, the two interpretations, are um, completely compatible and melded melted in the end into an account that is very much second personal.
2: Um, excuse me for my voice. I agree with Alan that uh, there is a strength that is not your strength. It's the strength of both sorts of interpretations. And I congress your attempt of meeting them. I will just give an idea, Uh, an appointment. I think that such such, uh, opposition, what kind of interpretation who have to cause some circumstantial cause and some proper cause. The circumstantial cause who be that Thomas are usually divided between philosophy, philosopher Thomists and, and, and theology and uh, theologians Thomists. And the proper cause is because one of them used to sometimes uh, start from positional point of view between knowledge and love, Uh, considering that uh, Augustine said that the priorities in love and uh, and uh, the priorities in knowledge. And also the Aristotelians uh, say uh, uh, say that uh, you need friends, but just if you like that much. So I think that it could be a solution like a way. Is that not to start from an opposition, from a positional point of view between love and knowledge, and holiness and friendly order, but to consider that Aquinas said many times that it, it, it consists in a theorem, a foundational theory. So, he said that love is love equals knowledge, is human love equals knowledge.
0: If you uh, keep this up, I won't remember what you said at the beginning because you are giving a mini lecture. I can't I can't remember it all. Let me start with what you've already said.
2: Yeah, but I want to say that love position, love follows knowledge and the uh, friendly other awareness friendly friendship is included in God contemplation. All things love follows God contemplation and otherness follow follow law contemplation because to love and
0: otherness, knowledge in, in human in nature. I think, what you, no I think what you're quite right, there has been a tendency in the history of Thomistic scholarship to cut them up into the bits which are respectable philosophically in a secular age, and to be embarrassed by anything that looks juicy, rich, and personal, and theological, and to leave that to one side for the theologians, And that will for sure give you a very odd, uh, a very odd interpretation of Aquinas. He's one mind, one person, and all these things in his writings come together. Not only that, not only that, but you know he's famous for saying about his Summa Theologiae, it's an introductory textbook for beginners, and everybody laughs. Everybody thinks that's an expression of uh, crazy medieval humility. But I think we could pay him the compliment of believing him. He means that work to be a textbook for beginners. And now the question arises, what does he think the advanced work is? And to me, it's obvious. He thinks the advanced work is the biblical commentaries. And why wouldn't he think this? Because in the Summa, you get a human being spinning out human theories about how it all works. In the biblical commentaries, we start with the words of God in Revelation and try to understand those. That would be the advanced materials, see what I mean? So if you try to interpret Aquinas' views and you don't do it in light of the biblical commentary, you be like somebody who's dealing with an interesting textbook and never reads the contemporary literature but thinks you've got it straight. So I agree, that is, that is one explanation for, for why we get these disparate interpretations, I agree. Thank you
1: very
2: much. Species is uh, God himself. So, uh,
1: his, his argument is that Aquinas takes his
2: cognitive theory of what to, from a very least, uh, as in Egypt.
0: I don't. I don't. Um, I don't disagree that God is the intelligible species for human uh, cognition of God. That was in the text that I read, so that's right. I agree with that. I wouldn't agree. He takes it from very I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that. When
1: I read it personal, I interpreted that as
0: no, no, it is, it, is in the, it is in the text I gave that God is, see, Aquinas is uh, very clear that everything is cognized through a species of some sort, but for God, cognition goes through the intelligible species, which is his own nature. And therefore, if you want to cognize God, you need to use that intelligible species also. So that's why in the text I read, uh, Aquinas says that in heaven you will be united to God in the sense that the intelligible species which is God's nature will be added to your intellect. So that's right. So I think that's completely right and was in fact in the text I read, but I don't think he gets it from Averroes on So I don't think he likes a very series. Thank you. <coughs> I would ask if you agree with
1: this idea that uh, since we need uh, a second person perspective, but not only with God, but also with persons, that in uh, heaven, in some way, get is enlarged if the contemplation of is shared in the community of the saints. So it would be social also personal, of course, but this would be necessary and to complete happily. Uh, the idea of the but also human of course, the first of
0: I agree completely. The issue is something like this as I read him, in heaven you won't need the others. You won't need them, but you will rejoice in them. The very best Thomas in the entire history of the world that I know is Dante. I think he has no peer. And Dante, uh, Dante has a very, funny, a very funny thing in the Paradiso. So from the first lines of the Inferno, Dante the Traveler makes you aware that he's an Italian wildly in love with Beatrice. Everything's about Beatrice. And he can't wait to see Beatrice. And it's Beatrice, Beatrice, Beatrice. Finally in the Purgatorio he gets her and he says, oh my gosh, Beatrice and then they make their way up through the, the circles of heaven together, and it's all, she's so beautiful, she's so amazing, and right as they get near the top of paradise, she vanishes and she's replaced by Bernard of Clairvaux.
2: <laughs>
0: and you think, oh my gosh, poor guy. <laughs> And the the point is brilliant. The point is absolutely brilliant, and I love it. Through the entire poem, this woman has been his guardian angel, his nursemaid, his caretaker, and he sees her as a human being in her own right, and he says she has gone to take her place in the mystic rose, to be filled with the contemplation of God which is her due, her joy, her place. She has her own place in the mystic rose where she is filled with the union of God. Now you might think to yourself, yeah, but it's tough knocks for you, Dante. You know, But what Dante says is, she was never more present to me than when she was in the mystic rose, united to God, she was never more present to me. No distance between her and me separated her from me She was closer, nearer, dearer to me when she was in her own place in the Mystic Rose than when she was by me. And to me, Dante seems a genius in this part of his
1: poem. I just feel, I've been a lot of putting hands up, but I feel like this is her argument for fitting us to finish there. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry we can't take more questions, but I do want to release people after a long day and we will see.